it's Friday 15th of December and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, coming up what to expect from growth, inflation and policy in emerging market economies in the coming year and what that COP28 agreement means for energy markets. But first, Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing joins me to discuss the big stories in macro and markets. Hi there, Neil. Hi, David. There's really only one thing to talk about, isn't there? We've seen historic falls in Bonneville since that Fed meeting Wednesday, particularly those comments from Jerome Powell at his press conference afterwards, hinting at rate cuts to come in the coming year. Been a bit of a study in contrast, really, hasn't it, though? We've had the Fed sounding all dovish, but the ECB and Bank of England giving far less ground in their meetings and, and the statements that followed their policy decisions Thursday. Actually, the ECB really pushing back on the idea that rate cuts were discussed at all. What do you think accounts for this divergence in approach? Yes, you're right. Yet again, this is the only story in town, really. And we discussed, didn't we, a couple of months ago at the height of the bond market sell-off, high, the rising yields that we'd seen looked unsustainable. It was about to hit the kind of reality of a of a weakening macroeconomy, that yields would fall back over the next six to 12 months. Well, a lot of that fall that we were forecasting has really just happened in the past two weeks or so. So a really dramatic shift in, in the bond market. Now, you're right, there, there has been a divergence, I think, in rhetoric between the major central banks with the Fed perhaps opening the door to rate cuts next year, whereas the message from the ECB, in particular the Bank of England over the past week or so, has been to, to push back. What accounts for that? Well, I think there's probably three things. The first is that the US is a bit further ahead in the inflation cycle, so it's had a few more months of falling inflation compared to the Eurozone and the UK. The second, I think, is that there's perhaps a bit more of an institutional hawkish bias at the ECB than as compared to the Fed. And I think the third, which is perhaps a bit more interesting, is that there's been a reluctance, I think, on behalf of the ECB to engage in forward guidance. So the ECB is taking this approach of one data release at a time. Now, the logical consequence of that, I think, is going to be that if, if we're right in believing that the Eurozone is on a similar inflation path to the US, but it's just six months or so behind, then at some point, the rhetoric from the ECB is going to shift because the data is going to come in, in in a more dovish direction. Inflation is going to be falling. And I suspect that by the time we get into the early months of next year, we'll start to get a shift in, in language from, from European policymakers. What about that hawkish bias at, at the ECB? It's notable that the bank lowered its inflation forecast for next year, but didn't really change its tune in terms of its policy stance. I mean, is there a risk here, given the ECB's history of making policy mistakes, that they keep their foot on the brake for too long and that we don't get this pivot in time that you talk about? I think that's right. I think one of the biggest risks for next year is actually not that the last mile of this inflation process proves to be the hardest, as some policymakers have suggested, but rather that inflation continues to fall, but central banks are slow to catch up to that reality. So as a consequence, real interest rates are allowed to, to rise and monetary policy is tighter than should otherwise be the case, I think. And I think those risks are probably greater in Europe than they are in, in the US. So I thought one of the most striking remarks that Powell made in his, in his press conference over the past week was that central banks will make a mistake if they wait for inflation to be at 2% before cutting. In other words, you want to be taking your foot off of the brake a little as you get closer towards 2%. And you don't need to get all the way to 2% before you start to consider lowering interest rates. I, th- I think that's, that, that is the case. And the, the, the greatest risk perhaps in the Eurozone is that policymakers take a, 
and so more aggressive approach, wait for inflation to be firmly kind of well below 2%, at which point they, they've kept policy too tight for too long and the real economy is suffering. As you mentioned, huge moves in bond markets these past couple of weeks. 10-year US Treasury was about 5% at the height of the sell-off back in October. We're now comfortably below 4%. You and the team continue to brief clients on the 2024 outlook. One interesting question that's come out of those briefings that a client's asking is, with financial conditions loosening at the pace reflected by this fall in yields, does the Fed really need to cut interest rates? So, so let's take a step back. I mean, how do you think this fall in yields does feed into policy discussions at the Fed and, and other banks? Yes, and Powell was asked about this in the press conference, wasn't he, about how his take on the extent to which financial conditions have loosened as a result of the, the rally in the bond market over the past uh, month or so. And I think all of this has echoes of what the former Bank of England governor, Mervyn King, called the Maradona effect. Now, for anyone not familiar with football or soccer, in the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal against England, Maradona, who played for Argentina, scored what, what has been widely considered to be one of the greatest goals of all, all time by essentially just running in a straight line from the halfway line. The key was that the England defenders thought that Maradona was going to shift direction, and so they adjusted accordingly and just allowed him a straight path through to goal. And the lesson for monetary policy, Mervyn King argued, was that central banks don't actually have to change interest rates in order to alter monetary conditions. They can simply do so by altering market expectations and shifting bond yields around. Now, I think all of that's well and good, but I think that the difference really is that bond markets are rather more sophisticated than England football defenders. And they they'll start to anticipate if central banks don't actually start to cut interest rates, then bond yields will simply readjust and that start to start to surge again. So I don't really buy the idea that the bond market is doing all the central banks' work for it. They're really acting in anticipation of the central bank cutting interest rates. If the central bank doesn't start to cut interest rates, then yields will simply revert, go back up again, financial conditions will tighten, and central banks will ultimately be forced to, to cut interest rates. So either way, I think the, the, it leads you to a path of lower lower policy rates. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We all get that, but. If you think back to this debate about whether inflation was transitory a couple of years back, should these banks really have raised rates this much, if, if even at all? The White House Council of Economic Advisors had a recent paper out which indicated that, that basically all of the rise in US inflation was really down to the supply chain distortions from the pandemic. As they've unwound, so inflation has fallen. Is that an argument against raising rates originally? I mean, was team transitory right all along? I think as ever, the reality is a bit more complicated than some of the, the rhetoric that we've had in, in the financial press over the past week or so. Larry Summers has, has weighed into this debate as well, inevitably. I mean, one argument that holds that actually, although Team Transitory believed that inflation would be short-lived, they didn't act that way and central banks jacked up interest rates and in so doing, staunched inflation pressures, price pressures, and thereby caused inflation to fall. So it looks like Team Transitory were right, but only because they acted contrary to what their own theory was telling them to do, which was essentially leave policy unchanged. My suspicion is that the truth lies somewhere in between. A lot of the inflation clearly has been driven by distortions caused by the pandemic, supply disruptions, but also surges in demand for particular goods and services throughout this kind of weird pandemic cycle that supply has struggled to catch up with and relative prices have shifted and all the aggregate prices as a result because other prices have been sticky and not dropped back. So it's a complicated picture. My hunch is that most of 
this inflation was going to come out anyway uh, as pandemic-related distortions unwound. But clearly, the fact that policy, both monetary and fiscal, has tightened has helped that process. So central banks can claim some credit for not making the situation worse, for anchoring expectations and for taking some of the heat out of economies. But I suspect we would have got a lot of the disinflation that we've had anyway as as those pandemic distortions unwound. And is it fair to say that, you know, if we agree that 0% interest rates aren't normal in a normally functioning economy, then central banks will take the opportunity to raise them, if only to build up some ammunition for when the next crisis hits. Yeah, I mean, people have made that argument. Again, I'm always a bit sceptical of that because the idea that you're going to create your economy in order to enable you to have some space to cut interest rates when your economy craters feels to me a bit circular and, and counterintuitive. I think a better way of thinking about it, as we argued in our work around our star, is that neutral interest rates have risen as a result of shifts in savings investment preferences caused by the pandemic, structurally looser fiscal policy caused by the pandemic. And so that means that as neutral rates have, have risen, so central banks have had to kind of tighten to, to keep up, as, as it were. And so we're not going back to that period of, of negative real interest rates that we had before the, the pandemic. By the same token, though, I think that they needed to tighten quite this aggressively to squeeze inflation out of the system. Probably not. No, it's helped to anchor expectations. But like I say, most of that fall in inflation, probably not all of it, but most of it would have happened anyway as, as, as these pandemic distortions unwind. Neil Shearing on a pivotal week in central banking and bond markets. I'll link to our analysis of all those meetings on the podcast page, but also that our star work that Neil mentioned towards the end of our chat. Now, our Q1 Emerging Markets outlook was published this past week. It makes the case for unusually large economic growth variants at the country level. Shilin Shah and Leah Fahi from our EM team sat down earlier in the week to talk through some of the key takeaways from our 2024 EM look ahead. Here's that conversation now, and it begins with Shilin setting the scene, showing where we see this growth divergence within EMs. If we rewind the clock a year, I think it was fair to have expected a synchronized downturn across the emerging world in 2023. We had aggressive interest rate hikes, both at home and abroad. There were widespread expectations for recessions in developed markets, which would have weighed on export demand uh, from the emerging world. And really the one emerging market that seemed likely to buck that trend was China as it pivoted away from its zero COVID policy. Now, in some places, these downturns have occurred in parts of East Asia, Central Europe, and the Andean countries. Economic growth has weakened this year. In some cases, such as Chile, GDP has actually contracted. But there are also cases where growth has been stronger this year than last year, and that includes some of the major emerging markets, such as Brazil, India, and Russia. Uh, growth in Turkey and Mexico has also been surprisingly strong, albeit that it has slowed um, a bit. So really, the overarching story, I think, is that there's been far more divergence in economic cycles across the emerging world than is normally the case. Yeah, that's right. And I think part of this has been due to the resilience of the US economy, which has helped emerging markets like Mexico, for example, that are quite reliant on on the US. Whereas other places where the economies are more reliant on European demand, like Central and Eastern Europe, have fared far less well over the past year. But for the most part, domestic factors have also played a really key role in driving the growth outlook over the past year. So obviously, the war effort in Russia 
has had a major impact in a lot of Eastern Europe. And in Mexico and India, investment has been really strong. And there was a bumper harvest in Brazil, which, which drove growth there. But I guess the interesting thing looking forward is that in 2024, a lot of these trends are set to reverse. Yes, and conversely, prospects for economies that have been through a wheat patch already are now improving, we think. So these include Chile, Colombia, and parts of Central Europe. Now, admittedly, these economies tend to be quite highly open. Uh, and so if we do see broad weakness in the global economy, then that clearly poses downside risk. But we do think that strengthening domestic demand should help to keep these economies on the recovery path. And indeed, growth in a few such as Chile and Poland could even surprise on the upside. Now, the net result of all of this is that aggregate EM GDP will probably settle at growth of around 0.8 to 1% quarter on quarter over the coming quarters. And that's down from a very strong period of about 1.5% quarter on quarter in the first half of 2023. Over the year as a whole, EM GDP is likely to expand about 3.8%, and that would be down from 4.5% in 2023. Now, implicit within that is that EMs continue to outperform developed markets by a wide margin, but we think that growth in most countries will undershoot uh, consensus expectations. But I think really the key point for investors for the next year, as it has been for this year, is trying to understand emerging market business cycles as a country level. Now, I think there's also been some interesting divergence in the inflation story too. What's happened there and how is the outlook stacking up for the next 12 months or so? Yeah, so obviously over the past year or so, we've had inflation falling sharply in places like emerging Europe and Latin America, where it rose quite sharply to begin with and coming down in emerging Asia as well, albeit from a much lower level. But I think we're kind of looking at it in a sense as though we've entered a new phase of EM disinflation where all the easy wins like energy prices and, and base effects are mostly behind us. And what we're going to see going forward is a bit more of a slow grind downwards of inflation. And in emerging Europe and Latin America, strong wage pressures are likely to limit how far and how fast inflation can fall there. So I think by the end of this year, we're still expecting inflation to remain above target in emerging Europe and Latin America, but it'll be closer or at target in emerging Asia. I think this point about the second phase of EM disinflation, albeit taking place at different levels and different rates across the emerging world is a really interesting one. How does that inform our views on monetary policy across the emerging world for the next 12 months? Yeah, so we think, I guess, the EM easing cycle is set to broaden out further from here. But again, as I said, because inflation is set to stay above target for some time, we also think that policymakers won't be able to cut rates as quickly as a lot of people expect. So we're forecasting um, interest rates in most EMs to remain above neutral by the end of 2024. Yeah, I think what stands out from this, uh, in the same way that we have regional country level divergences in the growth outlook, investors really need to be treating EMs on their merits um, when it comes to monetary policy as well. I guess another important key theme to think about for EMs over the coming year is financial vulnerabilities. Um, in general, we've seen them ease over the past 12 months. So banks are better placed to absorb uh, higher non-performing loans and external balance sheets have improved, which reduces downside risk to EM currencies. However, we are concerned about um, the growing risk of public debt sustainability. Uh, we think vulnerabilities are probably most acute in smaller frontier markets that have larger foreign currency denominated debts. These include Argentina and Tunisia. Um, but there's also 
I guess, slower burning sovereign debt problems in some of the larger EMs. Um, and I guess one of the interesting things to think about on this front is there's a lot of elections coming up in 2024 and, and these could be flashpoints in terms of public debt issues. Are there any countries, I guess, that stand out on that front, Sean? Yes, as you say, it's a big year for elections. Votes uh, taking place in countries accounting for over a third of emerging market GDP over the next 12 months or so. And as you mentioned, there are several that could prove crunch points when it comes to debt risks. The most high profile of these, I think, is in South Africa. The big risk there is that the incumbent ANC has to enter a, a coalition with the left-wing EFF. Uh, that could put what are already um, very fragile public finances onto an even more treacherous footing if the ANC agrees to costly policies. Perhaps the most notable one would be a basic income grant. We'd also be worried about a handful of others too, the ones that really stand out, Mexico, Ghana, and Romania, where there's a real risk that looser fiscal policy puts upward pressure on bond yields. Um, interestingly, though, I think that the two biggest elections, um, at least uh, by population, which are in uh, India uh, and Indonesia, probably don't present the same level of fiscal risk uh, as some of the other countries um, that I've mentioned. I mean, Indonesia's public finances are generally looking in quite good shape. Um, and in India, Prime Minister Modi's BJP has done very well in recent state elections. Now, that suggests to us that it has plenty of goodwill in the bank, and, and really that reduces the need for large giveaways. So I think for these two countries, perhaps the more interesting point for investors is whether the elections can deliver stable governments that are able to continue to push ahead with challenging structural reforms in the face of inevitable um, opposition. For India in particular, I think this is a really crucial juncture that we're at. The next few years will be crucial in determining whether it capitalizes on the opportunity that's presented by French shoring to develop a large productivity boosting export manufacturing base. That was Shilin Shah and Leah Fai on the EM Outlook. I'll link to the report on the podcast page and look out for details of our EM drop-ins. Those are our short-form online briefings coming up at the start of 2024. They'll be looking at our upcoming work on everything from Turkey's policy shift to Mexico and French shoring. Uh, we'll also be all over that Taiwanese election on January 13th. Uh, I'll let you know when all that coverage is coming out and when registrations for those sessions are open. Finally, this week, the agreement struck at the UN Climate Conference or, or COP28 on transitioning away from fossil fuels was described as historic. But what was really achieved and what are the implications for energy markets? I spoke to David Oxley, who leads our climate economics team, about how to separate out the hype from the reality and I started by asking whether this COP agreement really was as momentous as the press coverage suggested. Well, I, mean, I suppose in many ways it's too soon to say. Time will tell. I, I think a lot of the, the warm welcome that this has received in parts of the media really reflects a sense of relief given how low expectations were coming into the event. You know, obviously a lot of column inches dedicated before the event about the Perhaps irony that the you know the UN's climate conference was taking place in a, a major oil and gas producer headed by the, the head of um, Abu Dhabi's oil company, and if you cast your mind back to earlier in 2023, the preliminary event to COP that takes place in Bonn every year was really a disaster. So, 
it, in the sense that we have walked away from COP in Dubai with an agreement in which nearly 200 countries have put pen to paper that for the first time highlights the need to transition away from fossil fuels and energy systems, I think is notable and yeah, does warrant some of the um, attention it's, it has received. Taking a step back, though, I mean, I think we we should be careful we don't put the cart before the horse in many ways because it would be wrong to look back at this moment as the time in which the decision was made to walk away from fossil fuels. I think what a, a more accurate way of looking at this is more of an acknowledgement of the international level of the, the process that is already well underway of moving away from fossil fuels. Um, but yeah, and then this this is kind of um, the yeah, an agreement at an international level that yeah you, you can't hold back the tide and we are we are well into a transition. I mean, it is it's easy to be cynical about a lot of the things that get agreed at COP, um, and particularly because some of the language is just UN jargon, really. But again, I, I think that the, the bolder thing to bear in mind there is that it's about expectations. You know, this is a document that needs to get signed off by nearly 200 countries. I think it's just par for the course that you're not going to get a document that is incredibly decisive saying we are going to do X, Y, and Z by this date. So I, I think actually a little bit of realism is needed. And actually, although the focus on the semantics around the language about fossil fuels and moving away from fossil fuels really took the headlines towards the end of the event, I think if you look deeper into the text of what was agreed, there are some really quite positive and quite notable areas that have been fleshed out, particularly the, the ambition to treble global renewable electricity generating capacity by 2030. I think this hasn't really got as much attention as it may, may have done had there not been this semantic argument. Yeah, talk a bit about that. What it, what exactly was agreed and, and what does it mean in terms of achieving climate goals and, and how achievable is this this trebling of, of capacity? Well, I, I think it depends. It depends from where what country you're sitting in. I mean, the, the key point is that some countries are already well on track to actually achieve this. And I mean, the big country, and encouragingly from a sort of global perspective, is that China, the world's biggest emitter, if it carries on adding renewable capacity at the same pace as it has done over the past three years, it is on track to treble renewable capacity. So I think whereas many countries will have to accelerate the pace of renewables rollouts, I think this, this is a big ask. But actually, we are early on in a stage at, the, at a time when renewable capacities over the past five years has already grown five times faster than fossil fuel capacity. This is a process that is playing out. So it, it is ambitious, um, but I do think it is doable. It's going to need to see some things go right, but it is doable. I, I think for, for all of the focus we have seen on adding renewables generating capacity, I think the other challenges related to that are twofold, really. The first of which relates to the well-known intermittency problem in that you can add solar power, you can add wind power, but it doesn't generate capacity all the time. You know, winds don't blow all the time and it gets dark. So there, there is big question marks as to how, as, as renewables take up a, a bigger proportion of our energy supply, how we overcome this intermittency problem. So this gets you into the world of battery storage and, and kind of you know, making sure that the grids are flexible. To, to cope with this intermittent supply. And, and then the, the second question relates to actually distributing the power from where it's being generated to where it's being needed. 
So this is going to require a substantial expansion of grid um, systems and um, electricity grids, both making them bigger, but as I mentioned earlier, making them more flexible to deal with the nature of renewables. Again, coming back to the example of China, we, we published a report last week which highlighted how China has is, is been investing nearly half a percent of GDP each year in expanding its electricity grid um, and making high voltage transmission lines. I think this is something we are going to need to see all across the world, really, a, a bigger focus on getting grids ready for um, greater renewable power. Okay, so putting the cynicism to one side, um, focusing on the achievement of getting this many countries to sign up, this many oil-producing countries to, to, to sign up. Talk about what all of this means for energy markets. We have a, a near-term view of, of oil prices softening uh, in the coming year as supply increases, demand a bit softer. But what about longer term? What does an agreement like this signify in terms of our longer term view of, of the energy market? Well, I think it's really symbolic of the extent to which the demand dynamics in oil markets in particular are changing. So our, our commodities team with their long-term oil model, which is derived from the bottom up, if they take views on how oil demand is panning out. And what was notable when you talk to them is that they really found it difficult to arrive at a conclusion in which peak oil was going to occur any later than 2026. So I mean, what we're seeing is two big dynamics in the oil market in particular playing out where demand from emerging markets and the petrochemical sector are likely to continue to increase. However, as we're seeing the rollout of electric vehicles in advanced economies, particularly the US and Europe, increasingly in China as well, you're going to start seeing that increase in demand from emerging markets and petrochemicals being more than offset by falling demand in other traditional areas of oil demand. So our long-term energy model sees oil's share of global energy consumption falling from around one-third at present to around 16% by 2050. The flip side of that is that renewables is going to go from around about 15% currently to around about half by 2050. So yeah, so we see peak oil occur occurring sooner rather than later. I, I think the one thing that our commodities team has been stressing and one thing that's completely in vogue when it comes to talking about monetary policy at the minute is the shape of how things go having reached a peak. So there will be a peak, but we expect to be more of a plateau for a while before EV rollouts really start burgeoning and then um, seeing oil demand falling away more sharply in the 2030s and 2040s. That was David Oxley on the energy market shakeup and the coming decline in fossil fuels demand much more on energy markets and the outlook for renewables on our website capitaleconomics.com if you're a subscriber to ce advance our premium platform you get access to all our analysis as well as to our climate reporting tools those are designed to make your reporting and evaluation work around climate that much easier with interactive macro insight and data Learn more about those tools and everything else that CE Advance offers at capitaleconomics.com forward slash CE hyphen advance. That's forward slash CE hyphen advance. The weekly briefing will be back again on January the 8th with much more from the team on what's happening in the global economy and markets. Till then, wishing you happy holidays and a happy new year.
Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.